Hi, I'm Michael Wiafe. And I'm Demetria Wack. Welcome to PolicyWise, a podcast from Youth Leadership Institute in collaboration with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council, where we challenge assumptions, discuss, and question policy to find out, is this policy wise? Each episode, we invite current and rising policy leaders to discuss current events, social issues, and political topics in order to promote youth voice and establish a model of intergenerational policy discussions. The Latinx community was the largest racial voting bloc for the first time in history during the 2020 election. In California alone, that's over 7.9 million eligible to vote, more than any other state in the country with about 70% voter registration rate in California, according to the Latino Community Foundation. Mexico sends its people. They're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems. It is not that folks across the border that makes them illegal. It is that we did not welcome them. We did not love them. We did not care for them. That is what is illegal. The Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. Biden was struggling with the Latino Hispanic voters, but Trump resonates. Branching off of the No More Deportations program, this group is determined to fight back against Donald Trump's xenophobia and racist rhetoric. California City is what the makeup of the population is. 30% African American, 40% Latino, that's 70%. And we know who we are. And we come from all lands where people of color who never saw themselves as a less than or second than second than citizen. We converge on this place called America. The relationship between the United States and Mexico has never been closer than it is right now. When you think of small businesses, Latino-owned small businesses are growing at a much faster pace. We have more and more Latinos going to college. The Latino electorate right now in recent polls is showing that we have highly motivated potential voters. And we sometimes have to remind our oppressors that we matter. The New York Times this week, front page, quote, how Democrats miss Trump's appeal to Latino voters. This is a collection of people that don't have to be told who they are. We, we know who we are. But in order to be able to get representation, we're going to have to have some elections. Ultimately, what matters is who makes those decisions. That's why all of these great signs that we have here, Rise and Vote, Blue Chuckle, this is why these signs are really so important. Today we'll be talking about past occurrences, the present state, and future expectations and outcomes of this year's election for the Latinx vote and community. With us, Jacqueline Martinez-Garcel, CEO of the Latino Community Foundation, also known as LCF, whose mission is to unleash the power of Latinos in California. Jacqueline is a visionary leader who is passionate about elevating the voices of communities, pursuing equity and using philanthropy as a catalyst for tangible, enduring social change. She's led LCF through a critical stage of growth and expansion to now one of the largest networks of Latino philanthropists in the country and is the only statewide foundation solely focused on investing in Latino leaders. Jacqueline is driven by a sense of urgency, justice, and determination to create opportunities for Latinos to thrive economically and engage politically. She served as vice president of the New York State Health Foundation, executive director of Community Voices in New York City, as an NIH fellow for the Merida Department of Community Health in Yucatan, Mexico, a faculty member at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, 
and adjunct at NYU's Global Institute of Public Health. She's been appointed to several boards, including the Institute for Civic Leadership and Grantmakers in Health. She currently serves as the KQED Community Advisory Panel and co-chairs the National Latino Funds Alliance. Jacqueline has published extensively on issues related to health equity, vulnerable populations, and community health workers. She holds a master's in public health from Columbia University and a bachelor's of science from Cornell University. Jacqueline, would you like to add anything else to your introduction? And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the Latino Community Foundation, and the happenings of the past few months and broadly the past few years and how it might have impacted your work? Well, first of all, thank you, Michael and Demi, for that warm introduction and for inviting me to have this conversation with you today. Excited to just talk to both of you. Um, what I would add to my bio, well, I'll also add that my parents immigrated in the mid-60s um, from the Dominican Republic and they landed in Washington Heights, New York, where I was born and raised. And it's my, you know, it's what made me who I am growing up in a predominantly Dominican, Puerto Rican, Black neighborhood um, nestled between the Bronx and, the, and Harlem. Um, it showed me what it, what, it, what it meant to fight for community, in community, to love your neighbors and not care what the media might say about where you live because you know the truth. It's my parents who just uh, embedded in me the values of social justice. Um, it's because of them that I um, wake up every morning fighting for what's right um, in our nation. Now, you asked me about the last couple of months for the Latino Community Foundation and what we've been up to. It's been a busy year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's sure. been a busy year, a difficult year, a challenging year. Um, but above all else, as we're approaching Thanksgiving, just grateful that we have the privilege to invest in Latino youth up and down the state and organizations that are giving them the platform to lead, to organize, to mobilize, to build movements that will change generations ahead. Great. And thank you so much for having you on, um, like listening to the introduction, just, you know, it's like, what a resume. <laughs> it's like an honor to speak to you. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so could you walk us a little bit through you know, what the Community Foundation does on like a, a normal year and maybe how that's different than this year with the elections. Great question, Demi. I don't even know if we've had a normal year. So I came on board <laughs> in 2015. I made the decision to join LCF in large part because Latinos had become 40% of the population in California. It was an opportunity to build an anchor institution that was about investing in Latino leadership and youth leadership and civic engagement and building economic power. Um, but little did I know that when I came on board in November 2015, we were going to be facing one crisis after the other. Um, and honestly, if I look back, like some people would say, like our communities have been in crisis for a while, given all the inequities that we're constantly fighting about. But it's not what we like to lead with. We like to lead with the strength and the assets of our communities. Um, the, the, I don't like the word resiliency. I like grit and determination. That's what makes us. Nobody wants to be put in a crisis to show that they're strong. But it's, you know, we know how to fight. We know how to innovate. We know how to be, um, I like to say, ingenuity, like using our talents to create a way out. So 2015 joined, 2016 was an important election year. Um, you know, not just uh, nationally, weren't too crazy about the results, um, but what we were happy about were that young people all across the state 
were beginning to register, mobilize. What we saw in November of 2020 is a result of really what happened in 2016. So what do we do on a year to year? Well, we invest in Latino-led organizations like Power California, 99 Roots, um, Dolores Huerta Foundation, Inner City Struggles. These are all organizations that are dedicated to investing in youth leadership that are led by young people that are working again to just not just organize for a march, but give people the, the platform and, and amplify the voices and the concerns and the, the demands that young people have about the future, about their generation. So investing in them is one of the first things that we do. We also do advocacy ourselves. Um, we you know, come together with other Latino leaders to meet with the governor on an annual basis to talk about the budget, to talk about investments in the state of California that would lift up and benefit and break the poverty cycle in our communities. Um, we also do a lot of work around um, the census. This particular year was important, not just because of voting, but making sure that our communities were counted. Um, as we go into redistricting, we know how important it will be that every person, whether they're documented or not, is counted because that means money and power and representation. Um, and that's critical for our communities. And we also lead a giving circle movement. Um, there are uh, about 22 giving circles that are part of LCF. And all that really is is this big table, virtual right now, but it's a table where we invite people who wanna pay it forward. You don't have to be a millionaire to be able to be a philanthropist. It's anyone who's desired and made a decision to partner to, to work on social justice and invest in communities. Um, and all we do is give people something to eat and some wine and we talk about the needs in our community and, and we create ways where people can give back and pull their resource together to invest in communities. Well, thank you for that. I think really good explanation of the work that you do um, and the impact that it's having in our state. I have a lot of questions based off of what you said. Um, but I, what I'm really curious in um, is kind of in the way that that young people are being engaged nowadays, both in both in civic engagement, um, but also on a broader scale into what is going on into the community. And, and, and it sounds like into uh, philanthropy work. Have you seen a shift within the past few years? And, and I guess what has what might have brought on that shift a, a few episodes ago, we had on um, uh, Aiden Erisossingham uh, from from the UC Student Association. And we had uh, Noel Mora talking about civic engagement for young people. And Noel brought up a really good point, um, along with Aiden about peer-to-peer -peer outreach and about engaging with people who look like them, who share the same demographic and how impactful that is. Do you think that that has really changed the way that it, it's been working? Yeah, I mean, as hard as this year has been, I'm actually like in a really hopeful place right now. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Dreamers movement, like these are movements that have been led by youth, by brown and black youth in our country, in our state, in our cities. And it's something that just is reminiscent of the civil rights movement. And I always remember, like, it didn't just happen in the mid-60s. Like, it was a movement that started in the mid-40s. And it took 20 decades for there to be, like, a, a palpable change. And I feel like we're accelerating that. And we're accelerating because it's led by the people who are most impacted by the things that we want to change. And the solutions are being driven by the community. And there's a sense of no backing down right now, which I think is something that is desperately needed. I mean, every generation, young people are always the ones who step up courageously, um, who remain hopeful in spite of all the negativity that may be happening because they see a way out. 
Um, but right now, like there's a coalescing of these movements right now that I think is really powerful, um, that I think makes a real difference in where we're headed to. Definitely. Could you maybe talk about some of what the, the major, like maybe policy wins are, policy losses, um, just out of this election, also just over the maybe the course of the last year. The hopeful part is in the organizing because there is like a civic awakening that's happened um, in the last couple of years. And this year, I feel like it peaked with the movement for racial justice in the summer. There was also this move to put measures on, on the ballot that, you know, should have been there years ago, but it was put this year. We didn't get all the wins in California that we needed. Prop 15, for example, was an opportunity to finally equalize and close the, the tax loophole and, and get $12 billion back into communities of color and their schools um, by just closing a tax loop in Prop 13. Um, but that didn't happen. And neither did Prop 16, which was to finally reverse the ban on affirmative action. Um, but what I would say is that Prop 15 came on a margin of 4%. Like it, everybody kept saying it was impossible. At the end of the day, the opponents invested total of 117 million and in the last week invested 10 million and it's hard to compete against those corporate you know big dollars that come in yet the general will was we want to get this passed um had we the campaigns to run these propositions had more resources i think we would have been in a different place right now but we did pass a measure qq for example in oakland which allows uh young people 16 to 17 year olds to vote for city um for school boards that's pretty huge because this move of 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 social justice of it of a of a democracy that's more representative and just starts with giving people an opportunity to act like we can't just tell people to register to vote and then vote when you're 18 why not engage them in the decisions that are going to impact their lives directly and so i feel like for at least the city of oakland that was a pretty big win um and there were you know the biggest win of all damien michael was the fact that we had 54 percent of 18 to 29 year olds show up to me yeah. that is the head line of 2020 um, that that number came out and voted um, again brown and black youth like have had so much up against them this year with the numbers of COVID-19 in their families the highest unemployment the highest in our communities yet people showed up and they voted <laughs> absolutely and I I brought this up in the past but I, Demi and I ran voter registration on college campuses a few years ago before it was popular to be engaged civically. <laughs> yeah. um, That's the best part is that it's like the in thing to do right now. We got to keep at it because it is the in thing to do. <laughs> it is. It is. I used to, I used to actually have people like my own friends be like, look, I'm going to follow you on social media because I'm tired of seeing your, you know, political uh, stuff and all that. And then those are the same people this year that are posting and I'm like, oh, okay. So now it's cool. Um, <laughs> But I, but on that that same I, I guess discussion on the wins and the losses of the elections, what trends do we see in California, and are do you think that those are matching up with the rest of the United States? I, I think in general we see California is kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of on a lot of these discussions, but not all of them. And so um, I think that we need to discover a little bit more of that nuance, especially as it comes to specific communities like ones that that you work with and represent. Yeah. I mean, um, I will say this, I feel like California is still on a journey to live up to its ideals, right? Like there are a lot of progressive ideals that we talk about and that um, we lift up. But you know, the fact that we couldn't, we're one of nine states that still has a ban on affirmative action, like, come on folks, like this is the most diverse state in the union, like what is up with us, you know? Right. 
Um, and the fact that wealth inequities is such a big like gap in this state is unbelievable. We live across zip codes that are the richest in the world. Forget about the nation in the world. And yet we have, you know, homelessness in record numbers. So, you know, there's one thing to say that we are a progressive state and then there's one to really live it. Um, and I feel like we're still in the journey to live it. Um, and as far as other states, like I, I am, I'm also really hopeful for the South and the, and, and some parts of the Midwest, um, you know, with the South right now, I think of Georgia and Arizona as places where the electorate is representing what the, what the demographics look like, you know, um, we're a nonpartisan organization, but what we want to see is that our, our, the electorate is actually reflective of what our country looks like. And we're just beginning to make that turn right now. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, black women have held this country and our democracy together. Um, and it's about time that we also just begin to um, invest in a way that will continue the legacy that they've left and they've begun for um, the communities that are actively involved right now. And, and if I can press that just a little bit more, I guess what might need to happen in California to kind of reach that same, I guess, shift in a very meaningful way to engage these communities? What, so a what do you couple mean? of things come to mind, Michael. Um, the first is, you know, you, you look at the map of California and, and I like to call them the Emerald Cities. Like you have, you know, LA, San Francisco, um, you know, other coastal cities where the progressiveness is fell and, and, and policies kind of align. Um, but there's a whole, what folks are called the fish hook, right? Like there's a whole region of the state that, to us, it's a priority region. Like to, to us, Central Valley, the Central Coast, the Latino Community Foundation, like that's where, that's where it's at. Like that's where the fastest growth of Latinos is happening. That's where young people are beginning to just like take shape and take leadership and lead the way. And where city councils in certain cities are beginning to finally reflect the demographics. The fact that 70% of some of these cities and counties are Latino and yet school boards and city councils have not been Latino at all. So we're just beginning to do that shift. So what needs to happen? We need to invest in community organizations led by people of color. Um, that includes Latino, Black-led, Asian-led, Native American-led organizations that whose sole purpose is to create the space and invest in leadership of young people, again, giving them the platform to be able to articulate what they want the future to be like, um, to be able to create a pipeline of folks running for office that are not just Black and Brown, but who are actually um, connected to the conviction, the moral conviction that we need right now, the values that we need right now. And then at, once we do those investments, it's just um, demanding and holding our our elected officials accountable for um, the things that we want to see changed in our communities. Uh, because we're, you know, such a large proportion of the voting block, um, Latinos in general, but if you combine Black and Latino votes, like, you know, they should be working, they're, they should be working for us because we help them elect them to office. And so the accountability is really important. How are they investing? How are they making sure to prioritize investments in communities that have been underinvested for so long? Thank you. Thank you so much. And would you mind uh, going a little bit more into, uh, like, I'm personally curious, as uh, someone who is from Central California, both uh, on, the, on the coast, and then also when going to school in the Central Valley, um, could you talk a little bit more about just kind of 
what the demographics are like there and what you're seeing uh, with the Latino community um, that might be different than other parts of California and, and how you see that impacting or potentially in a good way uh, for the rest of the state. So I, I, first of all, I mean, I love that you have like roots in that parts of the stakes that those are my favorite places. I have to tell you in part because I like, like revivals and, and movements have started in the heart of California. Like when you think about um, the sixties again, like it was there that we began to like coming out of the shadows and like showing up and, and organizing and demanding like livable wage for farm workers um, and right now, like I, like again, see like this rising up of young people again taking their place as leaders in their communities. In Fresno, more than fifty percent of the population is Latino. In places like the Inland Empire, there are places that are mostly seventy percent Latino. Um, like Delano County is another place that comes to mind, and I just, I am hopeful that what is happening right now will last long enough for us to see mayors and city council members and and just key leaders that will do what michael tubbs did for stockton and you know um it can happen and it's happening it is happening um we need to just invest in the infrastructure that is there. And by infrastructure, I mean the nonprofit infrastructure. I mean the small business that are led by people of color who are doing, again, all odds against all odds again. The fact that Black and Latino businesses have little access to capital, like opening up a small business is one way of breaking that generational poverty, like civic engagement and economic like justice go hand in hand. Um, when people have their feet on the ground, it's, it, we have the luxury to fight for civic changes in our communities, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It answers your question, Demi. I kind of. Oh no! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm always just looking for someone to hype up the Central Valley, <laughs> and I'm just I'm so happy. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Fresno, Merced, um, Modesto, Delano, like, and you know, one of the things just to tie back to LCF's work, like our giving circles, like the strongest ones are in the Central Valley, and it was like people were just waiting for the table to be set to just come and and come together and use their resources to pay it forward and lift one another up like you know when I first came here it was like well central people were saying like central valley there's not a lot of resources are you gonna get a giving circle up and running there as soon as we like said we're here like we didn't have to do anything like folks just took over and just did the work and brought the resources together and now we have like four giving circles in the central valley and wow. they're the largest ones like it just goes to show that um this narrative of there being so much need, like it's the wrong one. There's so much opportunity, so much asset, so much, all we got to do is just water it, like just water it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask too, sorry. Um, <laughs> is there uh like, is there any, you know, right now with COVID and everything going on with the resources, um, is there, how do you see the pandemic, you know, affecting Latino communities um, and, and, yeah, where do you, how do you see this, like, affecting it maybe in a negative way and in the way that it's affecting, like, the whole world? And and what potential, like, you know, movements do you see coming out of this um, with your foundation? 
Thanks for the questions, Emmy. It's funny, I'm so hopeful that in this in this conversation because it's the two of you interviewing me right now. But you know, the truth is that it's it's been an incredible year that shook us to the core. And by incredible, I mean negatively, incredibly difficult. I feel like the fires of hell have been unleashed on us. Um, you know, more than half of the COVID cases are among Latinos, more than half of the COVID cases are among uh, the deaths, excuse me, the COVID death are among Latinos. Um, here in the state of California, I shared with you all as we were prepping for this podcast that for this this conversation um, that my aunt passed away recently and this Thanksgiving we'll just have to celebrate without her. And, you know, it's just been one hit after the other. And the pain is real. The suffering is real. And unemployment rates are four times higher in the Latino community People are going on eight months of not paying their rent, um, which means that when that moratorium is lifted, folks are going to be without home. Um, and yeah. there's just a lot of suffering and pain and losses. Now, what COVID did, though, was just un unveil, like, unveil the inequities that were there to begin with. Like, this virus didn't just, like, choose who to, you know, affect, like, it followed the trajectory of policies that have been in place that leave more people more vulnerable than others. Um, you know, whether it's lack of healthcare and healthcare access, um, it's not a coincidence that Latinos have the largest rates of chronic conditions. It's because there's been um, not enough investments in healthy places where people can eat, healthy places where people can exercise, um, not eat, you know, the hospitals, like just even think of where they're located. A lot of communities of color don't even have access to a good hospital or health clinic. Um, and those are things that have been there for decades. And so th that's, that's that vulnerability. And then the biggest part that we've seen is, well, who got the privilege of actually staying and working from home? It wasn't black and brown um, workers essential workers are Latino workers are, you know, they're the ones that are making sure that fruit and vegetables are being sent to our supermarkets are being meat is being packaged. So we have it in our freezer. Um, those were the folks who couldn't stay at home. Um, one out of five Latinos um, has a luxury of staying from home, four out of five don't. And so to choose between getting that virus or working is not really a choice in for someone, you know? And so, those are all the negatives right now that just have been, I would just say exposed because they were there. It's not like it just happened overnight. They were there to begin with. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't have policies where, um, and, and funding sources where there's a pandemic that everyone should be able to stay at home um, until things you know get better. As far as the positives moving forward, I like to say that the walls came tumbling down this year. Um, everything that we thought was working, we, some of us knew they weren't. And so it's obvious now that it wasn't working. And there's an opportunity to rebuild a just economy right now where workers aren't just being paid a livable wage, but we should be thinking about how farm workers are given access to the land to own it, uh, to build their homes and not be like living in these conditions where 10 people are sharing a space because they can't afford the rent. Like the people who feed us, like, don't even have a safe place to live in. Um, we need to change that. We need to um, stop just focusing on the floor about minimum wage, but really as a country that has the resources and, and the opportunity to think about how to build wealth in communities of color. That's what we need to be focused on as we move forward. Yeah. And I, let me start by saying sorry for your loss again. And, you know, I think that so many 
so many unnecessary deaths have happened this past year and it's not equitable. And you've, you've mentioned that a few times and I've um, realized that I've heard the word equity more times in the past nine months than I have in the past 20 years. And I think that that's a beautiful thing um, that we're finally in the most you know tragic way possible, realizing um, the impact that inequity has on our communities and how, um, and how much that, that is desperately affecting people. You brought up the, in, uh, I'm sorry, the Inland Empire, which is where I'm actually at right now and where I grew up. Um, so I was really glad when you brought up uh, the community I grew up in, because I think, you know, there are, you know, quote unquote, forgotten regions of the state that don't necessarily get that focus that are still, um, I think, contributing to the economy and contributing to, to who we are just, just the same, just as much. Um, I also think about the Imperial Valley of California. Um, going to San Diego state, the, the, I, I guess the, uh, I hate using this term, but I, I find a better term for it. The satellite campus of SDSU is in the, in the Imperial Valley and we would visit and just how different of a community that was just of a different place and how I'd never even heard of it before, before going out there um, through the campus. And it, exactly what you say, we need to water the opportunity and build the infrastructure that's necessary. Um, and so all of these things are kind of swirling around in my head and to shift gears just a little bit, a very hot topic right now in California politics, right? It is uh, the gubernatorial appointment to the U S Senate. And there have been arguments from just about all sides going to poor governor Gavin Newsom, who who's going to have to make an appointment. Um, And and I've read, I've read some arguments from, from different communities um, arguing their points for different levels of representation, whether um, you know, whether it's from the black community or black woman replacing Kamala Harris, um, who was only the second, you know, um, uh, black woman to be in the Senate, but also that California has never had a a U.S. Senator from the Latino community. And, and so, so I, I really want to know from your point of view, what is going on, um, what needs to happen, and what has LCF been pushing for? Yeah, great question, Demi. Um, that's probably been uh, consuming a lot of our time uh, these last couple of weeks. In fact, it was in August that we issued a letter, an open letter to the governor um, to to urge him to appoint um, a Latino Latino once the seat became available. Obviously, no one knew what the results of this election was going to be, but we anticipated that it was going to be a um, pretty, um, what's the word, uh, coveted seat, for lack of a better term. In 170 years uh, since California was created as a state, we haven't had representation for what is now the largest ethnic population in the state of California. Um, and it's not just the numbers, it's you know the economic contribution, the workforce, um, the fact that this year in particular, Latinos have been hit so hard by COVID, unemployment. We need someone that's gonna represent um, that population, our population, our families, our communities, um, and fight for the changes that we need to see happen. And there's a window. Um, you know, Biden said that in the first 100 days, he was going to focus on immigration reform. We need finally to have in a Latino Senate senator to be able to make that come to life and fight for it, like with all they've got. Because in two years, that person will be up for reelection. And in two years, we can accomplish a lot. Um, but it's going to matter who sits in that seat. Um, I don't like the, the, where the media has headed now in, in you know, pitting black 
um, groups with Latino groups. We're also one and the same. What I didn't share at the beginning is, you know, my father is black Dominican. My mother's white Dominican. Like I consider myself Afro-Caribbean, like this false dichotomy that it's one or the other is just a false dichotomy. So I want to call that, I want to call that out. Secondly, I would say that um, California has an opportunity to have both. Um, Feinstein should really think about stepping down in 2022 and putting her weight and her money behind a black woman to run for her seat. Um, and by, by weight, I also mean all the people who support her should be put behind because money does help win. Um, and I will go publicly saying that all over because I think it's really important for it to be said. California is one of the most diverse states in the union. And why shouldn't we have a Latino and a black woman uh, representing the state of California in the U.S. Senate? That is a dream right there. <laughs> I was just reading that. <laughs> Um, and I think moments like this, uh, honestly, make it so that in, especially in the media and, and in certain conversations where you're pitting community against community, um, you're almost forcing this conversation of oppression Olympics, right? Who has it worse? Who needs the representation more? Um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that does not always have to be the case. It doesn't um, have to be the case ever. <laughs> like, I, you know, it's, you know, we, we get, it's it, fighting for the crumbs, like one, like really, like, let's, let's, let's really be thoughtful about this. Um, why is that the case right now? Um, and that's not where our focus should be. Fighting for the crumbs, exactly. Um, you were preaching to the choir. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask for, for whoever uh, does end up in this position or in future positions, as far as kind of the intersections go between, you know, race and what, what, uh, what kind of things do you think need to be focused on as far as like the intersection between that and gender? Um, and, and what do you think like the main issues are in the Latino community um, as far as what needs to be separated between, uh, you know, non-binary men, women um, that hasn't necessarily been brought to light so far? And with that also, um, how would you interpret kind of the, you know, the incorporation of youth into that conversation and how might that be different than the older populations of those, those population, uh, older sections of those populations? Yeah. Um, good question, Demi. Uh, on, on the gender piece, I, you know, having women, I mean, I think there's 22 right now um, in the Senate. Like, you know, it's also women who have held again, the country together. Um, it's women who have sacrificed, especially this year in particular, being, you know, caretakers, workers, like business owners, nurses, teachers. And yet to think that at the Senate, like we don't, we barely have representation. And I know that we just celebrated the centennial of like the women's right to, to vote. But man, a hundred years is a long time to have like equal representation in the U.S. Senate. Like, come on, like, let's get it together as a country. Um, so that's critically needed. And I will say that, um, you know, LCF isn't endorsing one particular candidate um, for the Senate seat. Uh, we would love for it to be a Latina. Um, and there's plenty of qualified Latinas here in the state of California who can fill that seat. Um, and the same goes true with, you know, the LGBTQ community. Like, we, I'm also you know, please that that so many of the letters that have been written have been about that representation, which we don't have, like, you know, in the Senate. And it's all one and the other. It's about what America and who America is. Um, and having the highest level of government represent that is critically important. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up a great 
point. Um, some, something that I, I told someone a few days ago was here in California, I don't think we have a, uh, a lack of great public representatives who are also from diverse communities. It's just a matter of making sure that they're tapped into that their expertise, that the communities are, are engaged, um, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that the voices are being heard in, in the, 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 I always think the hollowest halls, right? The, the hollowest halls that echo the largest and, and have the largest voice. Um, so as far as far as that goes in representation, I guess thinking a little bit into the future, 2022, 2024, 2026, 2028, you know, what 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 changes might need to happen? What what work do we need to do next in order to make sure that that more voices are still being heard um, to make sure that we have more representation? What are the key elements? Well, I'm going to start with the internal stuff that needs to happen. Like our communities need to rest. Like we need to let our leaders rest. We need our young people to rest and take care of themselves and one another in their community. Like we need room to just exhale. And we haven't quite gotten there just yet. Like, you know, it was just yesterday that we finally had the GSA announce how the transition can start. Like, that's crazy. Like this is a democracy. (laughs) um, So I feel like we're still kind of letting little breaths out as things move on. Um, So I just, I want to acknowledge the fact that this year has, you know, been one hit after the other and we need room for rest. Like I'm just going to put it out there. Um, and, and as a funder and if other funders will listen into this podcast, encourage them to support organizations to like take a mini sabbatical, like let their leaders take sabbaticals, let young people who've been organizing just kind of have a moment to breathe. Um, it's funny how breathing has become like the, the biggest issue this year and both literally and figuratively need to do more of that. The second, I've already talked about investing. Like we can't wait to October of 2022 to start investing again in civic engagement because there's a you know gubernatorial race or there is a Senate race. We need to be able to start January, February again this year. And I say January, February to give that little bit of window of the rest that I'm talking about, right. but like then keep at it. Like we got to double down because we can't lose momentum. We got to get some wins in DC early on. And then we got to keep fighting for some local wins for some of the things that just happened and implementing them the way that people would actually feel impacting their lives. Right. Um, And then let's keep investing in that movement building and, and that pipeline of young people running for office. Like let's not wait for 2022. We got to get off this. Like we're going to do this every election cycle, the work of building leadership, building infrastructure, building civic engagement, happens every day in our communities and we got to invest in that and make it happen yeah i as you mentioned that you know we need to rest i'm like oh yes rest would be nice but then at the same time i know after two weeks of rest i'm going to be itching for the fight again yeah, right yeah no, to, but that's to continue great. trying that's to great. inspire change yeah um, so I'm, gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt you but i just what the one thing that i keep you know reminding myself and and the team is great. that like I think about MLK too, like, you know, that the fight wasn't just a year. It was 30, 40, 50. It was, it was a long time. And, and mm-hmm. if we're going to keep at this and, and be alive and, and hold our ground, like we got to make sure that we're pacing ourselves. We have to live to fight another day. <laughs> and another decade. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and you brought up a really good point. I'll just, I'll just make this point before asking you one of our, one of our last questions as we near the end of this conversation. Um, you know, you brought up that we, we have to get started early, right? And it, it's engaging folks early. It's getting those early wins. I think something that, that went 
awry with the ballot measures. And I think is something that we as a state need to figure out and probably the nation need to figure out is how do we make sure that like voters know what's actually on the ballot? Because I think especially, you know, the past, the like months leading up to it, nobody was really talking about what was going to be on the ballot. Like two months beforehand is when everything kind of flooded. Right. And there's so many things that were going on and the media was everywhere. Um, and, and so I think it's really important that we need to gauge, engage voters early so that they know what's going on, that there's no kind of rush to the polls or which which commercial did they see recently right and and that's the way that they vote um so this is a question that i i've, I've asked um I, I met someone from lcf before and i asked them this exact question um and i'm sure some of the listeners might be wondering as some of us are kind of switching terms and 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 figuring this out um and i think some of the us from the younger generation kind of uh learned that latinx was the most inclusive term um for the community um, and, and I've been in discussions where, where some folks um, are, are saying, no, we should use Latino because Latinx um, doesn't exist in the Spanish language. And actually, I was, I was looking at data just yesterday that Pew Research says that 75% of the national uh, Latino community hasn't even heard of the term, but then also that it is still a very inclusive way of referring to everyone within the community. Um, it makes it challenging for, the, for those of us who are not members of the community to also try to be supportive in the best way possible um, and use the correct terminology that people feel comfortable with. Um, and it could be seen as a generational gap. So I'm, I'm wondering how you navigate this in your work. What do you think and, and how might it affect politics in California? So I'm going to start by saying that I hope it doesn't affect politics in California because um, my take on it is that that shouldn't be the battle that we're fighting right now. There's so many bigger things that we need to be focused on our energy and attention in getting resources, both public and private resources invested in our community. Um, there are healthcare, employment, economic mobility issues, small business, like there's so much that we got to focus our attention on that to get caught up in what we call ourselves is just not worth it. Honestly, that's my honest like gut re response to your question, Michael. Mm. Um, how we handled it at LCF is that we want to give room for people to use the terms that, that they feel most comfortable with. Um, interesting enough, I, I, I typically use Latino, Latina. Um, I just, I, that's the generation I grew up with and I feel comfortable using it. Um, I never felt comfortable using Hispanic. It's funny how that can be also a generational thing. Right. Um, I, that's amazing. It's like I cringe when I hear that word um, because it's not a Latino word. You know, like it's like Latinos, like, like a, it's, I can use it in Spanish and I can use it in English. And, mm -hmm. you know, as someone who is um, bicultural, like it's not just about translating topics. It's about the culture. Right. But at the same time, in one of my email blasts, I actually did use a Latinx um, term. And man, my inbox was flooded by people who were just like, why are you calling me this? Like, I don't call myself this. And I was like, I guess that's how you feel about it. And that's okay. Like, we got to make room for people to respond however they want. Um, so yeah, and, and, it, and I don't, it's it, like, if, if, if you're using it, like, I don't feel offended by it. I'm just like, oh, hey, Latinx, that includes me. Um, I'm not sure my parents would feel the same way because they never heard the term that often. And they're like, Latin, 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 like, like, <laughs> you know, so it's also making room for the folks who Spanish is still their first language who are not comfortable using that term. Um, so my thing is not the battle to be fighting right now. Like, let's get it together, folks. Like, <laughs> we got some pretty serious issues. Um, life, 
um, altering decisions and, and things that we have to fight for right now. I'm really glad that you brought us that perspective. Coming from, you know, the perspective of we have, you know, some battles to be fighting now, what can young people be doing now to kind of get involved in this fight? Um, how can young people get involved in the Latino, Latinx, Latina community? Um, and, and what can they be doing in general to, you know, help support the foundation and the direction of California and the U.S. going forward? Thanks, Demi. There's a lot packed into that question because I want to say is like, you know, it's already happening. Like young people are are already involved. Um, young people were the ones registering folks. Young people were the ones doing the text banking. Young people were the ones like, you know, making sure that their family members had the info they needed to vote. Um, like my experience was wherever I, whatever space I was in, like it was dominated by young people. And so it, like it's happening. Um, as far as like what else can be done, um, that's a big ask because I just feel like keep at it is my answer. Like keep doing what you're doing right now. Um, and with local organizations that are in communities, like finding ways, civic action isn't just like registering to vote and voting and then doing the census. Like civic action is like, you know, working with a neighborhood organization to paint a mural in your neighborhood. Like that's civic action. That's owning your community and the beautification of your community using arts and music and spoken word to inspire people. Like that's all civic action. So like I, I'm, I, I'll just say that find that talent that you're passionate about and then use it to inspire yourself, your peers to keep at it, um, take care of each other. Because again, this is a generational movement that is happening. Um, and I like to think in terms of seven generations, right? So like mm -hmm. what we start, what we just got started is for the next one that's about to come up, the next generation, the, you know, the, the seventh and eighth graders that are watching right now, what is happening, like what you all are doing is inspiring them. And how do we keep at that? keep that work going as far as lcf like we've had this dream of having like youth-led giving circles um you know we have some young people the youngest i think is 19 who's part of our giving circle but we'd love for you know for it to also just be completely youth-led um so if anyone who's listening in is interested like give us a shout out and we'll figure out how to make it work <laughs> I think we could think of some few folks who might be yeah, literally running through names in my head. Like, okay, I went back yeah. and copied your email. Okay, I'll, I'll save that. Are you doing um, it virtually? <laughs> yeah, right now. That's yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I think we're going to stay that way for, um, you know, we usually have like four meetings a year and it's great because people like there, like I said, there's music, there's food, there's fun. There's like talking about issues that are impacting communities and then pooling resources to invest um, in those solutions. Um, but most of it can happen virtually and then we can just have a party at the end of the year and just celebrate like, you know, the, the, when, when we can do that, I should pause and say when we can do that. <laughs> the face to face um, continues to be important. I mean, it's great, but wouldn't it have been awesome for us to be sitting around a table right now um, in the same space? Yeah. We've yeah. learned to adapt and it's great, but yeah. Um, every, all our listeners, please join Michael and I and all our guests at our 2022 big policy wise party um <laughs> happening at fresno in fresno at fresno state <laughs> awesome i'll be there that means you guys i'll be there yeah they less yeah perfect well Thank you, Jacqueline, for having this conversation with us. And I think it was really enlightening. And you definitely had so many perspectives that I'm sure will, will create an impact on, on some of our listeners. 
Um, and, and again, just thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Oh, you guys gave me goosebumps. Demi, Michael, thank you for inviting <laughs> me to have the conversation. Jared, who's behind the scenes, making sure that everyone can hear us. Thank you for all that work that you do to inspire, to lift up, to amplify the voices of our young people. Really appreciate it. And, and happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have a chance to hug at least one family member <laughs> and celebrate with them. Um, but thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you. This was a podcast recording of PolicyWise. We are your hosts, Michael and Demi. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Ford and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Jared Amonos produced this episode and the music was created by Ian Post and sourced from artistlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussion with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.